From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. In the 1960s, Anne Hamilton Byrne set up Australia's most notorious cult, the family. Last month, she died. Martin Mackenzie Murray spoke to one of the survivors about living outside the cult and reckoning with her death. Why did you start to take in the children? Over 21 years, 28 young people went through our hands. Why did you do that? I love children. Now, it was the biggest cult in Australian history. The family was led by Anne Hamilton Byrne. The sick and twisted cult leader collected children through adoption scams. She abused and brainwashed them, convincing her worshippers that she was Jesus Christ reincarnated. Of all the criminals that I investigated in my time in Victoria Police, she was the worst. Marty, let's begin with the family. What was it? How did it operate? It was most explicitly a cult with pretensions to New Age mysticism. Martin Mackenzie Murray is the Saturday Paper's chief correspondent. It formed in the 1960s and its leader was Anne Hamilton Byrne, who was, there's this obliging word, it's almost always used with cult leaders, charismatic. She did seem to be charismatic. I don't think it's gratuitous or irrelevant to point out that she was an exceptionally beautiful woman and I think a lot of men fell in love with her and she asserted that she was Jesus Christ reincarnated and many came to believe her. A lot of these first meetings with her acolytes came through yoga and Anne Hamilton Byrne kind of worked parts of society that were filled with quite wealthy, upper-class, highly educated, kind of lefty intellectuals. And they were then becoming highly credulous and excited about Eastern mysticism. Far from the noise and pace of city life in the cool, clear air of Rishikesh, North India, Pathy News reports from the meditation retreat of Maharishi Maharishi Yogi. This is the time when the Beatles go and visit the Maharishi, who himself is later exposed as a fraud. That his brand of peace of mind could only be truly appreciated by intelligent men of the world with rewarding activities and high incomes. Among his most valued disciples were the Beatles, top of the pop pupils. But there's this kind of excited experimentation with Eastern mysticism, uh, with mind-expanding drugs. And so on a property in Victoria's ranges, uh, in the Dandenongs, there was a very large property. She acquired more property through the kind of brainwashed generosity of her followers. And she also ran, wickedly, an adoption scam. And so there were fraudulent acquisition of children and also the kind of browbeating and exploitation of single vulnerable women to have their children taken from them. So she ends up acquiring this kind of small brood of of children and brainwashed followers who work on the property. All willing to do the bidding of their master. I was told to leave my first wife and go up to the hills. I did. I was told to, that I would be going to have a baby with another woman, and I did. The children in their time were held in isolation. They might be locked in cupboards, they were starved, they were beaten, and they were given LSD. On top of this was the kind of erasure of their past and who their parents were. 
Anne was extraordinarily controlling, but especially controlling about what people said about her and especially controlling about relationships between the captives or the followers. And that included the children as well. So she was very careful to separate people and not allow friendships or bonds to form. And it lasted sort of functionally until 1987 when police raided the property. As we go down the road, I think it began to dawn on me, this was actually the end of it. At the weekend, six children were seized from a property owned by the family. Five of the children have appeared in a Melbourne children's court under care and protection applications. When police raided the property, they found incredibly emotionally odd and haunted children, but quite sharp, intellectually sharp and articulate children. How on earth was something like this able to go on in and around Melbourne from the 60s through the 70s and 80s? I mean, it just seems like completely unbelievable. There was that credulous support of quite eminent and wealthy Melburnians. So there were academics, qualified psychologists and psychiatrists lending, if not their imprimatur. There was one psychiatric facility in Kew, which is a suburb in northern Melbourne, that was lent to the cult. And it was there that illegal kind of psychological experimentation with electroshock therapy and LSD would be applied to people, cult followers, basically with the aim of brainwashing them. And she was an exceptionally gifted liar. And so if some rumours managed to get out, she played the victim with great articulacy. He hit me with his hands. My head kept hitting the wall and I saw tears. Is she making that up? You know quite well they can. They can what? Make things up? Kids can make things up. We've all been kids. Did she ever face any kind of consequences or criminal charges for her behaviour? Not really. There was certainly her public exposure following the 1987 raids. There were some small convictions for fraud. And this revolved around the the adoption scam. So there were some sort of light charges about the forging of documentation. But regarding the sustained, bizarre privation of these children, no. You first met some of the survivors of the family a couple of years ago. Tell me about the experience of meeting people who'd been directly affected by her behaviour. Yeah. We met a few years ago. uh, We had lunch before a public panel. This was associated with the premiere of a documentary of which they were the subject. Some were understandably suspicious of me. Some were really unguarded and very candid. Some had children, some didn't. All of them had shared this grievous history. All of them shared an affection for Lex DeMann, who also joined us. He was a now retired Victorian detective that was crucial to their freedom. And I met Ben Shenton, who was 18 months old in 1974, when his mother effectively gifted Anne Hamilton Byrne custody of him. And he was then taught that she was his mother. It was not until 1987 when Ben was much older, that he was freed. And I spoke with Ben this week, and we spoke about a lot of things, but one thing I was interested in knowing was how he had responded to this thing that he had been waiting a long, long time for, and that was the death of Anne Hamilton Byrne. We'll be right back.
The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. The leader of one of Australia's most insidious cults and a woman described by detectives as pure evil has died at a Melbourne nursing home. There are not enough evil words to describe Anne Hamilton Byrne, but for a former detective, today there is only one that matters. Dead. May she rot. That's all I can say. Anne Hamilton Byrne, this charismatic leader of the cult known as The Family, has just died a few weeks ago. She was in her late 90s. You spoke this past week to one of the children who was raised by her within the cult, Ben Shenton. How did he react to her passing? He said he felt relief. He said a particular song came through his head, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, from The Wizard of Oz. I write in this piece that he's a man of ardent faith. He's a member of the Pentecostal church. He's given to rumination on grace and generosity. And he had this particular vision in his head that was of her reckoning. So this was a woman that committed the ultimate blasphemy, that she pretended that she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ when, in fact, she was a servant of the devil in Ben's belief. And he had this image of Anne Hamilton Byrne finally chastened, humbled before the Lord, bowing in her ultimate reckoning and having to confess that she was a profound liar and that she would then be condemned to hell. And how did Shenton describe his own faith in the face of what he'd gone through as a very small child and into his adolescence? How did he reconcile those two things? He can reconcile it easily or much more easily than the other survivors. So... Ben refers to himself as a born-again Christian. His interpretation of Anne Hamilton Byrne is not one of some deluded or dangerous criminal. It's not that she was a crook or a charlatan. It's that she was literally a servant of the devil, and the devil had appointed her with occult powers. The other survivors, because of what they went through, religion is largely repugnant to them. Some of them said to Ben, look, you've just left one cult to join another. And so that caused Ben a little bit of sorrow and a little bit of reflection. But he says the proof of the effectiveness and the truth of the word of the Lord is in his life. He's married. He has two kids. He seems quite content and relatively at peace with himself. And he says that has come through religion. And so as he says it, the proof is in the pudding. And does he have a relationship with his biological family? Is that something that he was able to get back for himself in life? This is something we we spoke at length about. So the cult is sort of functionally dismantled in 1987, but it still exists in that there's still a good amount of people who revere Anne Hamilton Byrne. 
and his mother was one of them. So in the weeks following the raid, Ben Shenton's 15, he gets a phone call from his mother and she says, Ben, you embarrass me and I never, ever want to see you again. And it's understood that this bit of cruelty was directed by Hamilton Byrne, that she was still and would for some time after the 87 raid savagely influence her followers and still try to keep them apart. So that was in the weeks following the 1987 raid. Both mother and son are close with Ben's grandmother or his mother's mother. And in 2005, they both accidentally find themselves on the same doorstep. But this is 20 years after the breakup of the cult by police. That's right. So his mother was true to a word, I don't want to see you again, and they didn't. They never spoke. So it's not until 2005 that they accidentally meet. And Ben is is a man now. He's married. He's got two young children. And so they never had any contact with their grandmother. So they all meet. And he says it was uh, strange, to say the least. It was like meeting a stranger. But he was insistent upon some form of reconciliation. So something interesting happens, which is this kind of creative rationalization that Ben's mother makes to get herself out of the promise that she had made to Anne Hamilton Byrne that she would never contact her son ever again. Because she's still devoted to Anne Hamilton Byrne when they have that chance meeting. Yeah. Considers her her master, is still under her influence, still reveres her. And so the creative rationalisation is this, that they have appeared on the doorstep at the same time to Ben's mother seems like some divine intervention. And so it's like, okay, well, Anne's my master, but perhaps a higher power has kind of intervened here and allowed or permitted a back channel. And Ben was grateful for that because he's like, okay, well, we can work that. He could see his mother creating this way in which it would be okay to break this promise with Anne. Hmm. Mother and son keep in contact. They agree to meet again. In 2006, less than a year after this chance encounter, they take a drive down Victoria's coast and then that evening they sit together for dinner. Ben says that he told her what happened, the starvation, the LSD, the beatings, the isolation, being locked in a cupboard. And she says, well, I knew of none of this. And he says she didn't call him a liar. She just said that I didn't know. She professed ignorance. And he explained why she wouldn't have known, how manipulative and concealing Anne was and how brainwashed he felt that she was. So there's a great difficulty here. Ben needs some acknowledgement from his mother, but his mother needs to save herself. And if you have irrevocably harmed someone, no less your own child... There's a limit to how much you can admit to yourself. Oh, yeah. If the truth starts jeopardising your own self-conceptions a self-conception about your basic goodness, self-conception about your benevolence, it's very difficult to embrace that truth. So there was a, a sort of a standoff of sorts. And a lot of people said to Ben, why would you persist with this if your mother cannot or is incapable of really listening to you and really acknowledging the profound suffering that occurred? Why do you persist? And he says, I want to know what her character is. I think that character is redeemable. After reconnecting with his biological mother, does Ben ever see Anne Hamilton Byrne again? In 2012, 
Ben agrees to go visit Anne Hamilton Byrne with his mother. And his mother at this point still adores Anne Hamilton Byrne, but it might be adoration rather than reverence now. So just the control that Anne Hamilton Byrne had over her mind and imagination might have diminished a little bit. So 2012, they visit her. Anne Hamilton Byrne at this point is, you know, effectively condemned to a nursing home, ravaged with dementia, incredibly old, incredibly frail. And I asked Ben if this was confronting. This doesn't sound like something most people would probably leap at. But he said he had no qualms about it. And seeing her was sort of confirmation for him. Like she was in such a state of decrepitude that it was easy for him to say, yes, you have the devil in you. You are not the Lord reincarnate. So for him, he likened it to a punctuation point. It was the full stop at the end of a sentence for him. So for Ben, there is the ultimate justice, which is since her death, she would have bowed before the Lord and confessed her sins. But in terms of more earthly justice, there was very little. So what he would like to see now is whatever property and assets are remaining, um, some properties, and she had properties not just in Victoria, but internationally. He didn't know what the size of the portfolio was. What bothers him now is what happens with those assets and what does the will look like? Because he certainly doesn't want any cult members to profit from her death. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. Much of the archival tape in this episode comes from Rosie Jones's compelling documentary from 2016, The Family. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Memento. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Elsewhere in the news, in Queensland, Attorney General Yvette Darth has referred the controversial mistake-of-fact defence to the state's Law Reform Commission, seeking advice on whether and how it might be repealed. The defence allows a person to escape conviction if they are unaware that their actions are unlawful and has been used in rape cases where the perpetrator has a mistaken but honest and reasonable belief that the person they assaulted was consenting. And in entertainment, the actor Rip Torn has died. He was 88. Torn built a reputation as an irascible and unpredictable talent during the 1960s before a later resurgence playing comic roles in blockbusters such as Men in Black. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. See you Friday.